0: Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is David Pevsner, a writer and actor who's written songs for naked boys singing off-Broadway and appeared on Criminal Minds, Modern Family, and Grey's Anatomy, among dozens of other shows. He's also become an activist speaking out against ageism and body shaming, and he writes about that journey in his new book, Damn Shame, a memoir of desire, defiance, and Showtunes." I interviewed David for Zoomer Magazine last fall, and now that Damn Shame is here, I thought it'd be a good time to get him on the podcast. David picked 16 Candles, John Hughes' 1984 directorial debut, and a film that codified teen comedy for an entire generation. It's the one where Molly Ringwald plays Sam an average teenager in the Chicago excerpts dealing with crushes, alienation, popularity, and the fact that her parents forgot her birthday in the rush to her sister's wedding. It's also the one where Anthony Michael Hall plays a geeky kid named Farmer Ted, and the one where Gete Watanabe plays Long Duck Dong, a character who's basically one step above Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's as far as Asian representation goes. Almost 40 years later, there's a lot about Sixteen Candles that doesn't hold up. But there's some stuff that does. This is someone else's movie.
1: Why 16 candles originally well, for, you know, I was think, going about like, you know, what's up doc, which I think is like the funniest movie ever made, but you did that already. Yeah. last year. Um, there were a couple others I looked at, but then I, what really came into my head was 16 candles because a few things. One, it was shot in my high school oh. after my high school closed in 1980. They took it over in 1984 to do this movie. So it's the first time I ever saw, um, someplace that my own legs had been on a movie screen. Yeah. Secondly, um, I had gone to college with a woman named Deborah Pollack and she plays long duck dongs girlfriend in this movie. And it was the first time I had ever seen someone I know in a speaking part in a film. And that was kind of neat. But then look, I have always been, and I always will be a teenage girl about love and You know, there's there's so much memorable stuff in the film. But that last those last couple of scenes where the cars pull out and there's Michael Scheffling, perfect, perfect Michael Scheffling waiting for Molly Ringwald. And then they go and they sit on a table over a birthday cake and kiss. Come on. You know what? Like, And I was when that movie came out, I was twenty five, I think. 25 or 26, mm-hmm. and it just went down to my little gay heart, you know. It really did. I think it's kind of, in a, in a way, even through all the craziness and the kookiness and the stuff that I recently discovered is not so good about the movie, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about, um, sure. it's still a romp. It's still really funny. It has, I think, one of the great comic performances of all time by Anthony Michael Hall as the geek, he, it's a brilliant performance, and I, you know, it's as a romance, you know, it's th- certain things don't stand the test of time, but overall, the feeling of the film and the romance of the film and the insecurity of, you know, the teenagers and everything, all of that feels very timeless to me.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the very definition of a problematic fave, the whole, the whole John Hughes oeuvre uh, because I was that age when mm-hmm. it came out, I was 16 in in 84. And these were the films that communicated myself back to myself, or at least the, the world that I wanted to live in back to myself. Yeah. Uh, and then you turn around maybe even 20 years later, I guess it would have been not even then, right. Cause fight club was 99 and people made the argument then that it was a Cameron and Ferris reversal and that you could apply the Ferris Bueller is the Tyler Durden of Ferris Bueller's day off. And Cameron is, is the Edward Norton and, you start thinking oh that's very clever oh but that means Ferris is a terrible person oh but he is a terrible person and then you start unpacking all of those things and that's before before I ever revisited 16 candles and realized just how racist racist rapey like there's That's, a, that's
1: I was actually last night and I had just watched it and was like oh I forgot about all that <laughs> yeah and I was um texting with my uh my cousin and she, we were talking about 16 Candles. She said, oh, I want to show it. I love it. And I want to show it to my kid. But I, I until I can explain to him how racist and rapey it is, yeah. she said that exact thing. Yeah. Um, she said, he's not ready for it yet. Because, um, you know, in watching, because I literally watched it last night, it it kind of reminds me, I if, for me, the reason why now I'm really glad we're talking about it is because on the subject matter of like cancel culture and banning stuff, whatever, I'm not a fan of, uh, people is one thing, you know, there are certain people who deserve to be canceled. But when you're talking about art and media and stuff, very often to cancel something, to ban something is kind of missing the possibility of a teachable moment, Mm. where you can still watch something, still enjoy something, but then also say, but hey, that part of the movie, we don't do that anymore. You know, it it and kind of talk about it that way. You can still, you know, I still watched it, I still enjoyed it, I laughed, I cried a little bit. But those moments, you know, every time they say long duck dong and there's a gong sound. Oh, my God. It's like, it's, it's, I understand why it was funny back then, but now you just kind of go, oh, my God.
0: Yeah. Well, that's what's so fascinating about it now, about all the, the Hughes output from the 80s is that it is so locked into what I can only call like the dominant entertainment perspective, where everybody went to see this. And this is what entertainment was. This is what high school comedies were. I mean, he kind of invented this version of them. But Amy Heckerling and Cameron Crowe had already made Fast Times at Ridgemont High. The, the precedent was there for an R-rated adult version of the story. And then this came along and commercialized it and commodified it and made it you know, like soundtracked it and made it a thing into itself, a, a, spe- a specific subgenre. But it's a white guy's version, and it's a like it's an older white guy's version already. He's kind of applying the prejudices of the seventies that he was used to, to the mid eighties. And it carried forward because these films were hits and they got into everything. And then you turn around and you realize that he's not five years, six years away from making things like home alone and baby's day out where the whole thing starts to become, I mean, he was also apparently really big on the Coke and that oh, yeah, that would clarify a lot of the the weird class stuff that goes on in his later films and how all of his scripts, Curly Sue as well, and, and things like that. They're all about how underclass people are trying to steal comfortable people's stuff. Mm. And it's paranoid and weird and, and unpleasant. And he just, like people of color, racialized characters, they didn't exist to him except for the purpose of jokes Except to be mine for jokes, or or even like Long Duck Dong, Long Duck Dong, and, and Ferris Bueller has the two carjack guys, the the valets who steal the car and run around with it, and they're not, you know, why, they're they're less than in in Hughes's eyes, and it's a struggle every time to reconcile the fact that. Some of this, like the storytelling is really strong. The visual sensibility is good. The, the direction music, is great. the soundtracks are great. He knows how to program a soundtrack and he gets good performances out of his actors. But it's still like a battle for me to, to try to decide, like, well, was this a blind spot for him or did he really not care?
1: Well, look, I mean, like I said, it was filmed in my high school. Yeah, We we didn't have any African-American people in my high school. I didn't have a lot of, you know, um, there were, you know, uh, Latinos and Latinas and, and, you know, there was a little bit kind of sprinkled through, but it was very white and very middle class. And so watching that movie back then, I was kind of like, oh, there's nothing. I don't see anything, you know, well, we didn't know that back then anyway. Like you said, that's what that's what they were handing us. That's what they were dishing to us. And we kind of accepted it and never questioned it but what's so funny is um now when you watch a film and there's such a there's such um an opportunity to show the diversity of artists and actors and you know whatever and you kind of go like wow, this is so not like what I was raised with, you know? Yeah. yeah. Especially the more kind of the lightweight kind of rom com things that, that I used to love to watch, you know? It was. It was all white, 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 white all the time.
0: Yeah, well, white and straight, too. I mean, straight, Hughes', Hughes films did not acknowledge, unless I'm missing something, the closest it comes to acknowledging the existence of gay people is the, the homophobic stuff in Breakfast Club and Weird Science. Mm-hmm. Um, And I... I mean, I, I I suppose at the time, even in your mid twenties, that's still the reality that you're seeing in entertainment culture. This is the, there wasn't a lot of uh, acknowledgement of, of well,
1: in in this at one point, Anthony Michael Hall calls his two geeky friends. He goes, "Fags." He calls them fags, right? Fags or something like that. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, I'm kind of like watching and you know, they they're the things. That are, but that really caught my ear because I don't remember that okay, I you know, and as a little fag boy, you would think that that would be something I would really remember. I didn't remember that at all. Mm. so that and and it's possible I even saw a version that maybe like bleeped it out or something. But I mean, I saw it in the movie theater as far as I can remember, but that really caught my attention. And yeah. you know, certainly, kids still call each other fags now, you know, that hasn't changed, but in the movies, we can't do that anymore unless it's, you know, you know, it's part of something. They can't just throw it out like that, you know, but if you're trying, if you're in a Scorsese film and you're trying to be realistic and stuff, I don't really think he's going to care so much if, uh, you know, about the political correctness of that.
0: Yeah. Well, especially if you characterize it as being inappropriate within the film, you can get away with Mm -hmm. it. I mean, the the closest I can come to is um, is the moment in Bill and Ted, the first Bill and Ted film where They haven't seen each It's really good. I've
1: never seen it.
0: It's smart and sweet. And we just watched it again last year in prep for the the sequel. And there's a moment where Bill and Ted are delighted to find out that they're both alive. They haven't seen each other in 10 minutes. And they think the other, each thinks the other has fallen (laughs) off a cliff or something. And they, they see each other and they embrace. And then they immediately step back and just go fag. But it's somehow sweet because these characters have no hostility to them. Yeah. And it's just the only way they know how to reconcile the fact that they truly love each other is to to push it away that way. But it but the the moment makes it clear that the film knows, if nothing else, that these characters are using it. But again,
1: a teachable moment, yeah, you know, yeah, um for for people watching the movie. It's not like oh well, they say fag, so we need to can't we need to like never show it again. Right. I mean, there are certain things like you know the Bill Cosby show that we never need to see again because you know that that's not even te- you know seven years worth of that man don't get me started i never thought he was funny (laughs) but um no i never did there was always something about him that really bothered me and sure enough Hmm. um but you know i think it's worth teaching about you know celebrity or something like that but and and i guess i don't know maybe they shouldn't cancel the show maybe you know because all the other actors you know are terrific in it It's a real problem, right? It is a real, it's a real issue. It is. The
0: significance of a project that is thus destroyed by one person. um, It really, like, it bugs me that I can't watch Annie Hall anymore because Diane Keaton is so good in that. She
1: is so good in it.
0: Yeah. And it captures, the film captures something about neurosis that that I think is actually valuable. Um, Seeing yourself on screen in any way is, is somehow, but then, you know, I also don't want Woody Allen representing me in any way yeah um and then all all the other people who've worked with him and and won oscars or not won oscars but still given great performances all that stuff gets gets put into a box with an asterisk on it and that's unfortunate and and to that extent i mean molly ringwald has said that she was really unhappy about a lot of yeah she's written she's written very movingly about it but the performance is great she is trying and doing
1: She's she's great in the movie. There is nobody in that movie that is not good. It's really you have those great character actors like Billy Bird and Edward Andrews and Carol Cook, Max Showalter playing the grandparents, Carlin Glynn, Paul Dooley, Blanche Baker as as her sister. It is a such a funny deadpan performance. Like, in fact, I remember that performance going that girl is doing absolutely nothing and she's hilarious. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's just these, these like goofballs knocking off against each other. And again, Anthony Michael Hall, I'll say it. And I said it before. It is one of the great comic performances of our time. He just milks the crap out of it. Oh yeah. And you know, so there's, a, there's a lot to enjoy in that film. Some of the stuff is very, very funny. The writing can be very funny. The situation, the music, the sound effects, like they add these weirdo sound effects to certain things that just kind of you don't know, you kind of half hear it but it makes you laugh mm-hmm. um if only and and Getty Watanabe is a wonderful actor and a really really sweet guy and you know he he's good in the movie except it shouldn't have been that yeah you know but he does yeah. he was very good and he and um Debbie my friend Debbie have that very kind of fun, sweet thing going on between the two of them. And um, yeah, it's, it is It is one of those things you can be a little uh, conflicted about yeah. liking something when you know there's something really wrong with it. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it is it is that thing too of what when you're talking about Watanabe, he's giving exactly the performance he was directed to give and he's yep. doing it well. He fully really commits. Well. There's no self-consciousness. The slightest bit of humanity, horribly enough, would ruin it. Uh, the same way that that Ted is completely unaware of who he yeah. is, right? Like he, well, there, he sort there's of owns the over it at the very end. But
1: plus, there's this over-the-top quality that that is there, but it's it's really couched in reality, you know. And Haviland Morris, who plays Carolyn, the the the, the kind of cute but bitchy girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I was a reader for auditions in New York sometimes and Haviland Morris came into audition and I loved the movie so much. And she came in to sit down and the casting director had to leave. So it was just her and I sitting in the room and I, she kind of was like, you know, looking at her pages and stuff. And I just said, okay, I'm just going to say this right now. I said, you are so good in 16 candles. It's one of my favorite movies. And she was like, Oh my God, thank you so much. Well, this gives me a little confidence today. She was really, really sweet. Um, And it was really fun to meet her because she really is. Everybody in that movie, I think is fantastic. John Cusack, Joan Cusack in the non-speaking geeky girl thing with the uh, retainer thing on. It's just so silly, but it's really
0: fun. Yeah, it's again, like I want to I want to praise it for what it does do right, which is capture the insecurity and the just the, the sheer the sheer teenagehood of it, like they're the they're worst. Yeah. There weren't a lot of movies that let teenagers get angry. Right. I mean, other than, other than the stuff in the fifties, like wild in the streets or, or the wild one where it was, a, you know, it was people in their twenties playing kids and it was already a cliche somehow mm-hmm. because the juvenile delinquent was, a, was such an overplayed thing. These are just regular. I mean, they're, they're reasonably well-to-do kids. Cause that's John Hughes's world. Nothing yeah. is, nothing is shabby in his world because he's creating a, a fantasia of adolescence but they're allowed to be pissed off at circumstance and powerlessness and and you know it really comes into its own in the breakfast club where it's all about oh, that
1: yeah. that's a great movie yeah. it really is
0: but it's rumbling under the surface here in so many ways and and just the well, fact it's covered
1: that, over by comedy and but the thing about it is that she's she really is was a great every person in this movie, you know, when Ringwald, it comes yeah. to being a teen. Yeah, she was great because she was really understated. She was the the most real of everybody for sure. And there's just something about watching this not only the teenage angst, but the like the whole world's going to fall apart if he doesn't love me type thing and just her struggle I just thought it was so sweet and something that we all, you know, when we had our crushes and our first love, and in fact, there's a great line that Paul Dooley says, he says, um, that's why they call it a crush. If it, if it didn't hurt so much, they would call it something else or something like that. There's some real wisdom in there about, you know, the adolescent love and, and uh, I don't know. I know I'm not supposed to, I don't know if this is the politically correct film to love, but I still do
0: you're allowed everybody bonds with things when they see them. Yeah. Uh, if they're, if it's that special and and it's not, this isn't the first time there's been a difficult shadow over the film. Um, although in this case, I think it's one of those things where every time someone picks a Polanski film, we have to deal with why. Oh, yeah. Right. But this isn't that like, it's just, it's a, it's so much a product of its time. And I think more than any of of Hughes's other films, it's the one where I think it's just because it was his directorial debut, he felt he had to pander hardest into that stuff, and so mm-hmm. he tried to make the most commercial, most saleable story he could, and that involved being really shitty to a lot of people within yeah. the world of the movie. Not the not the way he treated his actors, but the way he characterizes people and the yeah. way he presents things.
1: But the thing about it too is that it it has a very strong premise for a film. Mm-hmm. When you're that, you know you're sixteen, and everything is like you know, working against you, and your family forgets your birthday. That's it's, I think that's a really great concept for a film because your birthday is everything, especially your sixteenth yeah. birthday. And you've got the brother, the Justin Henry brother, who's just such a little asswipe, you know uh, <laughs> and the parents who are just oblivious. Because they've got this other daughter getting married and everybody's putting their, you know, their attention into that. And the guy she's married and their family are just like idiots. And it's really like, yeah. there's there's just really so much to enjoy in this film and so much to kind of sweetly identify with, I think.
0: And putting it on Ringwald's shoulders. Mark moves. Gives us the chance to watch her become a movie star too, in a way that might not have happened with someone more familiar to the audience. I mean, I, I have a a colleague, I interviewed Ringwald in 97. Oh, wow. uh, For office killer uh, with Cindy Sherman, which was one of the weirdest situations I've ever been in, which is just like you you're both incredibly representative of such specific different things from the 1980s. And here we are talking about a movie you made in the same room, really just a, a fun, weird interview. Um, but a colleague of mine, who's maybe, I want to say five years younger than me. He begged me to let him tag along because Molly Ringwald was Molly Ringwald. Uh, he was, I guess he would have been 11 or 12 when he saw 16 candles. And, and mm. she was probably, we never really talked about it cause I didn't want to embarrass him or, or really push too hard, but she was probably his first crush. Really? Oh, like it's the first sweet. screen crush. And I, I, we came, he came with me and, um, just sat in, he also, he wrote for an arts magazine. So I was like, well, at least you can meet Cindy Sherman. That'll be something. And he sat in the interview and he could not look at Ringwald. It was adorable and weird. And just, he, he couldn't ask He couldn't move, uh, when her attention was on him. and, and, I'm relating to her as an actor who's done lots of stuff that I've seen and that and she's that, an old
1: pro and she knows how to handle all
0: Absolutely. Of it. But that fundamental movie star thing for her, absolutely unquestionably in my mind goes to 16 candles and she, owns that film she shoulders it so beautifully and carries every emotional moment and she's got such a wide open performance and she's Um, so
1: relatable she's just like the most relatable because she's also very simple in her work and it's funny because (laughs) if you've ever seen her on the facts of life the first season of the facts of life she's very just like everybody on that show which i loved i love the facts of life call me teenage girl but everybody's very big and very sitcomy so compare yeah. her performance on that show with what she does in 16 Candles. And it's literally night and day, you know, yeah. she's, she's great. I mean, I just, I just adore her, you know,
0: yeah. I watch she's... her on Riverdale now. She's a mom. She's on Riverdale. I don't watch Riverdale. Yeah. I know. I mean, I've heard that the, like the joke of the show is that they cast all the teen idols as, as parents now, right? Well, yeah, because they had
1: her and then Luke Perry. Luke Perry, of course. And they had a very moving moment. And after Luke Perry passed away, they did kind of an episode that explains how he died on the show. And um, it had to do with him getting hit by a car when he was helping somebody change a tire or something. And the person that hit that drove the car, I, I can't remember if it's the mother. Anyway, the mother was played by Shannon Doherty. Oh, Wow. Yeah. So we had a 90210 thing going and she was she was great. It was very touching, you know, to watch that kind of thing. And this is, you know, this is what TV does to us. We get very connected to these characters. And so when you have a a film, when you have a character like that, like Molly Ringwald's character that kind of takes you with her and puts it out there, that's that's remarkable to me. You know, and yeah. then unfortunately you get to the point at the end of the movie where we essentially find out that Anthony Michael Hall, you know, date raped, <laughs> not Anthony Michael Hall, the geek date raped mm-hmm. Carolyn and you kind of go, oh, at the time, you're like, oh, okay, well, they got, to, they both got what they wanted, did they? Uh, no, they didn't, no, oh, you yeah. don't realize it, but now, boy. Yeah red flag it's a
0: really weird wish fulfillment thing for the movie to rapey, 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 rapey yeah well and just to think that that is what audiences wanted like to write it from the from the position that well this is going to work this is what people will mm-hmm. want and it kind of was because no one we said anything him. at the time right like you're wanted want it to work you want it to pay off and i mean just, he's, he's uh, a hero you
1: know, he's he's one of the heroes of the film and who you know and it's a film about him wanting to succeed sexually you know that's that's his whole thing it's his his only goal it's his whole goal through the whole movie to prove to you know that he's a man or whatever but um it it he gets it in the end and you're kind of like well good for you but not good for you really yeah
0: but in the movie
1: it's like okay well it happened and you know everybody and then she got what she wanted because she had a good time apparently Mm -hmm. like
0: that's that's a really weird kind of Turn of <laughs> yeah, but I can see of he, plot there. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I can see Hughes thinking, "Well, if the joke is that Ted is really good at sex, then that solves everything."
1: Exactly. But it really yeah. just doesn't. It really me. just yeah.
0: <laughs> no. I, I I have to say, I discovered years ago that Jim Carrey was up for the part. Um, back when he was basically doing stand-up comedy in Canada, like, he was just he was he hadn't done any. Film at all or television in 1983 or four when this would have been cast and he was up for it and apparently played it as a stereotypical Jerry Lewis nutty professor nerd, which mm. you can't do. Like Ted only works if he's a person who doesn't have social skills. If he's a, if he's a cartoon, the same way, like if he's as broad as as Long Duck Dong, you can't sell that. That that character becomes monstrous and, and yeah. annoying. But uh, Hugh said that Hall was the actor who just showed up and performed the role without doing any mannerisms and his, his lack of effect was the thing that the character needed.
1: And some of his choices, like you don't know where that came. There's one moment where he's talking to um, Michael Sheffling about um, Samantha, about the Ringwell character. Mm-hmm. And they, the 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 house has just been trashed because there was a party. And so this is the after of the party with, and so there he makes martinis for he and Michael Sheffling yeah. hands them off and then takes a cocktail napkin as he's talking, he just kind of hands it to Michael Scheffling and Michael Sheffling kind of takes it and throws it away. And it was just so like, who who thought of that to pick up a cocktail napkin and hand it over at this house that's been destroyed? Yeah, that's just it's little things like he does tons of little things like that that are just I don't know, I, I clever, clever, clever.
0: Yeah, and well, because that's what grownups do, right? Like so much of his his behavior is mimicry.
1: Of mimicry of yeah. something a mature That's person a good does. Point.
0: But it never he never comes out and says it. It's never called out. It's just there. And it really, yeah, it makes him so much more interesting because the um, well, what was it? Like the greatest thing you can do as an actor is have a secret. And and his secret, I think Ted's secret is that he just doesn't know what he's doing and he's only doing things he's seen other people do. Mm-hmm. But it makes him the most interesting person in the frame.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> and technically he can go big you know he can be big as day but he also pull can pull it back mm-hmm. and you know even like a moment when there's that whole thing where she's drunk in the car and and the Jake character she goes like who's this who's 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 he and pointing to Anthony Michael Hall and My- Michael Sheeflin goes that's me then she points at Jake and she goes well who's he well that's him oh, okay and and he just and Anthony Michael Hall just sits there and goes uh-huh. With a little bracy smile. Tiny, 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 but really funny. Yeah. It's one of I I, you know, if I ever get to meet that guy, I'm gonna tell him that I do think it's a pretty goddamn funny performance.
0: It's a great performance. And mm. against someone like Shuffling, who he's not bad. But he's really I, he
1: reminds me of the jocks that I went to that I went to high school with, you yeah. know, kind of closed off, like but he was just so beautiful yeah
0: yeah i mean he's, he's only there for that right for the for the purposes of the film which mostly sticks with sam's point of view jake ryan has to be unattainable and distant and, and exactly and, and like i always think of troy Donahue, you know like somebody who just looks the part but you never really want to talk to him
1: well uh, also at the at the end after they get together it's really sweet and then you walk out of the movie theater and you go but it's not gonna last <laughs> you know He's going to go off to college and she's going to start junior year and, you know, she will have had a wonderful summer or whatever, but then it's done. It's not going to, unless who knows, you know, mm. we'll never know. Michael Sheffling, you know, is out in the world somewhere. He's like a furniture designer or something. Just, just possible there, like the possibilities
0: still exist molly ringwald and michael sheffling will one day get together i mean you have to hope in your heart of hearts that everything's going to be fine for everybody in these movies because they I end know. on such a perfect cloud but yeah it, there's nothing wrong with a sequel that picks up and finds them i mean there is now because hughes is gone and i don't know that anyone else could try to rebuild that but you do yeah. want to know what they would be doing now maybe it's just because i've been watching Yellowjackets, jackets which is the the 25 year flashback thing going on and you just keep mm. thinking well what would she be doing What what? what does she grow into? Who does, who does Sam become? And what did Jake do? And was there anything in that? And and I think casting Sheffling, because the other casting thing that I found out is that Viggo Mortensen was up for Jake. In, really? Yeah. In 1984 and 1984 Viggo Mortensen, I think would have been fascinating, but he would have been too interesting.
1: Exactly he needed to Jake Jake needed to be kind of a cipher in a certain way, kind of a, a representative of every jock mm-hmm. out there, you know, but you know, Michael Scheffling went on. he did um he was in longtime companion. yep, he played a yep. gay man in longtime companion. um you know, you could tell this was a guy who maybe wasn't a natural actor, but really like did what he needed to do, you know and and didn't let his looks be the only thing. he obviously, you know, had the craft to. Become what that was, you know. Yeah. But you know, he left the business not too long after that. I think he, I want to say he
0: was in Vision Quest. He was, yeah, yeah. and Mermaids. I think was the last, maybe the last yeah. thing he did, because that was around the same time as Longtime Companion, right? Early nineties, nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety-one. Uh, was it? I think so. Mermaids was definitely nineteen ninety. Longtime Companion was maybe a year later. Mm, shot a year later. Shot that movie because the American Playhouse thing.
1: I saw it. Um, I saw that movie at a screening, um, in New York, big screening. Craig Lucas was there and everything. Oh my god, after that movie, because you know, I moved to New York in '82, Mm -hmm. right at the right when it all started, and that audience, which was a lot of you know, gay men, huge audience, that um, uh, applause after that movie. Went on for I can't even tell you how long. Yeah, because we needed to see it. We needed to see kind of a hopeful ending. That that it, that it kind of, kind of has in a way. Um, oh, it was so moving.
0: Yeah, I'm, I mean, it has the this sort of imaginary reunion or the the, the,
1: yeah, the dream reunion on back. the beach,
0: right? And and I saw that in a tiny screening room in Toronto with maybe twelve people, and I don't even I think. I think one of them might have been gay. You know, oh, wow. I think Jay Scott would have already. Jay Scott, who was openly gay and the the only film critic at the time who was openly gay and and in the who could have been in that studio, I, in that screening room. I don't think he was there. I think he'd already seen it. Mm. But just the, I mean, you work in the arts and you you obviously you can't not know what's been going on for the last ten years. And I mean, I was in my mid-20s, early 20s in the, in the early 90s. And it's just, it was just devastating then. Um, but that was me on the outside, not actually having lived through it. And that, especially not in New York, I can't even imagine yeah. what that would have felt like.
1: Well, there's, I, I've mentioned this before on one of my interviews, but there's a documentary coming out called Ghost Lights. And it's about all of the New York theater people who we have lost to AIDS. Oh, wow. And what, what could have been if they were all still here. So I was interviewed about Howard Crabtree, who was the costume designer for the show I did called When Pigs Fly, a genius, an absolute genius. And that was his last show and he died before we even opened. Um, So I kind of tell a story about meeting him that's really really kind of emotional um, when I think about it. Um, But yeah, this documentary, they've been making it for a few years now, so hopefully it'll come out soon. I think it's like an eight part thing for some for some network i'm not sure i would love to have more information
0: about it i'll keep an eye out for it that sounds really it sounds really powerful
1: you think about all the people we lost you know so much talent some really some really good eggs i mean when i worked in new york um you know they're just either from the show you're in or the show that person's in you know somebody's gone somebody's sick somebody's out somebody dies it just was
0: a lot Yeah. I mean, we're just, I, I, we're recording this the day after Ronnie Spector's death was announced. And it's just like every day somebody, and it's not even COVID anymore. I thought it was initially. And it's just turned out to be age where these people are in their 70s and white. Betty White. Right. And that feels wrong, even though, you know, to quote a longtime companion, nobody's stalking anybody now. It's just the, the sense that, the sense that in the 80s, simply existing was enough mm-hmm. if you were a gay man and it seemed like the concentration in New York just because that's where the community was right that yeah. the, the most vocal and the most um public but I can't even imagine the the hollowing out of a culture the way that that the way it was then for, mm-hmm. for you all it would
1: you know and I've said this before about you know when I get asked about this the the stuff about AIDS in my book it was. It was a wonderful time in a certain respect to be in New York, because we, as with the fear, with the specter of AIDS over us, we still had to live our lives. And for those of us who were new to New York and discovering our sexuality and going to the bars and, you know, going to the bathhouses, whatever, we just had to be really careful about it. And we had to kind of be vocal for each other with ACT UP and all those, you know, mm-hmm. um, we had to take care of ourselves because nobody was really helping us. You had Dr. Fauci, you know believe me i remember that name from way back when because he was there but ronald reagan wasn't mayor koch wasn't idiots fuckers i mean really you just think about how whenever anybody laughs anything off because it's not happening to them it's just unconscionable it just makes you so angry and that's what that's where all the anger came from
0: and then of course to bring it weirdly back to 16 candles you look at that and there's no acknowledgement that gay people even exist in a movie Oh my like gosh! right? Like it just, it's just, there's a, there's a wall between that reality and and John Hughes's world.
1: Absolutely. That's, it's funny. I was watching it and the only time I thought about gay people at all was when he said "fags." Mm. didn't even think about it. Mm. And Michael Shuffling, please take your clothes off. That's <laughs> <laughs> that kind of ran through my, that was, that was my own little gay
0: movie going on. Sure. but that, and, <laughs> and in a weird way, that's what Shuffling is there for.
1: fantasy the you know
0: to be desired
1: yeah she wants him she can't have him she thinks she can't have him i want him i can't have him and i really can't have him so (laughs) so let me see her do it yay yeah
0: that's what romantic comedies are right they're the the avatars of our own desires but they're just i mean you know, good for Billy Eichner, who's actually doing the gay rom com apparently that that he sold to Universal. They're shooting it now. And
1: yeah, bros. I two think gay it's leads.
0: Oh, that's I didn't know that. That's a good title. I think it's called Bros. Yeah. Nice.
1: And um and Single All the Way with Michael yuri was on. Right. Was on Netflix. The
0: Netflix Christmas movie. Or yeah,
1: and was, there was another one, the um the the Christmas fix up, or was it with the one with Fran Drescher. Oh
0: and, I didn't um, see that. And oh, it's Happ- cute. Yeah and happiest season last year in or oh, in 2020. I, right?
1: I I loved Kristen Stewart in that. I you know, I don't don't really know her that much as an actress. I mean, I saw a couple of the Twilight things and, you know, that's that was one thing. But sure. in that and in Spencer, did you see Spencer?
0: I did, yeah. She's fantastic. She's generally pretty good. She's the Twilight films made her famous, but She's made a point of not making more of them, like she not, makes not staying as a in genre. And going out. Yeah, even when yeah, she's yeah. making something like Underwater, which is just a deep sea disaster movie with mm-hmm. a monster, um, she's doing stuff. Like she's she's bringing things to the role and and making the part live in a way that it might not have otherwise. And it, I don't know how we get back to Sixteen Candles from here.
1: Um, <laughs> I know we kind of we kind of took a, a turn, but we let's don't. See. We, uh,
0: we don't have to. But if it yeah yeah it is um I know well, how we get back to it. Okay.
1: Cuz if we are going to talk about the book at all the book is my book is told through the lens of this guy who is a teenage girl who loves 16 candles loves that kind of, and still does. I've been watching, never did it before, but I have been watching all the gay, not, all the Christmas movies, Okay, all the ones about the baker that comes, you know, goes to the small town and the guy that she went to high school with. Da, 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 da. I've seen about 10 of them this season before having never seen any of them. And I cry at every single one of them.
0: What's the attraction? Why this year?
1: Well, partly it's because it's right in front of my face when mm. you, you turn it on Netflix and there's 52 christmas movies just staring you in the face and you go oh that actor i like that actor or um that sounds cute or i need to turn my brain off and so i'm going to go watch a christmas movie you know at the end you know what's going to happen there are there were a couple that it was just so badly you know you could tell it was just bad writing you know not interesting whatever that i turned off but for the most part i would sit there and I go and they're not long. They're like, you know, 90 minutes long. And it's, I'm, I'm a romance. So it's funny that with my book being as um, having the elements, the kind of erotic elements of it, that, but I'm still this, this, you know, idealistic, total romantic. And yet there's that other side of me that um, I felt really crappy about for a lot of my life because I felt like I was dirty and shameful and whatever And so that's part of my journey was to kind of connect this little boy who used my pillow to, you know, I used to kiss my pillow when I was a little boy and it was always some TV star to the person I am now who I still sometimes will like cuddle up to my pillow and pretend it's, you know, Matt Bomer or something like that. Um, But I, you know, there's just underneath, I I think I've come full circle in that that little romantic boy is still there but everything else on top of it i've now kind of taken taken ownership of and um and that's really what the book is about it's you know being your authentic self letting your erotic you know fantasies and and not feeling shame about your body and and not feeling, especially if you're of a certain age, like me, you know, admitting on your show that at 63 years old, I will still cuddle up to my pillow and pretend it's a TV star because you know, who cares? You judge me if you want, I don't care. You know, it's, it's, I fall asleep and I feel like I'm, you know, I'm kind of spooning somebody. So (laughs)
0: yeah, that doesn't seem entirely unreasonable, honestly. Uh, just isn't it's at this point in a pandemic too as a form of therapy it just feels like a good way to go to i don't have a
1: dog i don't have a bird i you know i'm here i've been here for you know the last two years on on my own pretty much so you know i gotta make my own fun as we say (laughs)
0: um well the the final question on the podcast is always the same which is is there anything from 16 Candles that you have used in your own work, um, borrowed, referenced, nodded? I mean, you've written songs. Were you ever tempted to to work the Sam dilemma into one of them?
1: Well, that's such a good question. And I wish I had taken note of that <laughs> while I was watching it yesterday. I know that movie so well in certain respects that there are certain lines that go through my head. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, whenever whenever I, I get a Tic Tac, I think about you know him pulling out that she thinks it's it's his you know penis on her leg, but it's a roll of like certs. Yeah. and he goes, fresh breath is a priority. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so anytime I take a Tic Tac, I think fresh breath is a priority. So there, are there, are, I think that there are certain things I, I can't even tell you any of them now except for that one that there are lines from that movie that absolutely do run through my head in life sometimes just like in Buffy um I will quote this and I I've, I always realize I have to explain it I'm such a Buffy are you a Buffy fan I yeah, yeah yeah I watched it top and, and bottom yeah yeah there's that that great moment at the end of the third season after they blow up the high school and they've had this whole thing whatever and it's all done and they defeat the villain and giles you know her watcher is saying something and she's exhausted and giles is saying something like um well you know it's it's quite a strange ideologue like he does this whole kind of wordy flowery thing and buffy's like fire bad tree pretty so anytime i'm in a situation where i'm like overwhelmed and somebody's like what's, what's wrong i'm like Fire, bad, tree, pretty. That's all I can handle. So, yeah, that has nothing to do with 16 Candles, but that still is a
0: teenage TV show. Yeah, but it's pop culture as a guide to life, which I absolutely understand.
1: Mm -hmm. Just trying to think if there's anything else that is such a good question. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, I wrote a song uh, called Fight the Urge, which is in Naked Boys Singing. And it's three teenage boys in the showers in high school trying not to get hard-ons. And it's based on my real experience, and so when I see them, like when they're in the gym, uh, when they're doing those those fake pull ups, Michael right. Schaeffling, that's that was my gym, that was part of my hell. Of course, you know. So I think about that, and I think about you know those those showers, which I don't think they show. They show the girls' showers, but they don't show the boys. But those showers were the ones that I felt all of my embarrassment and shame in. Those and my grammar school ones. So, yeah. So I wrote a song that kind of somewhat connects to, w- to what's there. But, yeah.
0: And now know. it's they're captured for all time in that film.
1: And now I know that when the minute we finish this, I'm going to go,
0: oh, wait a second. <laughs> There's that. It happens. Anyway. It's fine. You can always send me a voice memo. We'll tack it on.
1: Okay, good. Thank you.
0: My thanks to David Pezner, whose book Damn Shame, A Memoir of Desire, Defiance, and Showtunes is in bookstores now from Random House. Thanks also to Scott Sellers. He knows what he did. You can find David on Twitter at David Pevsner, all one word, and you can find 16 Candles in a really comprehensive Blu-ray special edition from Arrow Video. It's also streaming on Netflix and Crave in Canada and on Hulu in the U.S., and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday in addition to writing far too much about movies and television. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, s e m cast and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com because I finally got the DNS issues fixed. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you enjoy it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.